Now we get into some parenting questions. So we're married when the baby was born. The baby's not mine. So when we divorce, I'm off the hook. Is this true? Is it false? Okay. And how about if the baby's only a year old? Does it, does it matter how old the child is? Okay. So you guys are already clued into this. That's a little bit of Pamela Donison from Donison Law Firm. If you missed last week's show, I want you to log on to blogtalkradio.com, soundcloud.com, or go to the website fathermatters.org. And you know what? We also had it at the Father Matters Facebook page. So go to Father Matters Facebook page, uh, get part one, like us on Facebook while you're there, and tune in because this week is going to be part two of Pamela Donison from Donison Law Firm. And she's talking about the myths and mysteries of family law cases. Very powerful show last week. Very, very, very powerful. Thank you for all the emails. Thank you for all the questions. And what I love about it, the majority of the questions, Pamela is about to cover here in part two. If you know someone that's going through any type of issues in family law, forward this show to them. Download it, email them, and let them hear this show. This is Pamela Donison from Donison Law Firm. And if you have questions, legal questions, contact uh, Pamela at her website, donisonlaw.com. That's D-O-N-I-S-O-N-L-A-W.com. And you can reach her at her Phoenix office at 480-951-951. Six five nine nine, and I will be plugging that website again, and I will be plugging that phone number again. But I also want you, all the men, to know this October nineteenth coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up. October nineteenth is our last Fathers Mentoring Fathers Workshop of this year. We're going to take off November, take off December, not from doing the ministry, of course, but from doing the Fathers Workshops. And we want you men to attend this. Log on to fathermatters.org for more information about our October 19th free Fathers Mentoring Fathers Workshop. Men, we got to get together to be the best fathers and husbands we can be. So what I'm going to do, we're going to go into a quick commercial, into the opening of the show. We're going to get back and share a few more things with you. And we're going to finish part two of the myths and mysteries of family law cases with Pamela Donison. This is the Father Matters Show with your host, Vance Sims. Father Matters is committed to building stronger, healthier communities by supporting, encouraging, and enlightening today's fathers and families. And now, your host, Vance Sims. So welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. I'm your host, Vance Sims. Thank you for joining us on the Father Matters Show. Like I was saying earlier at the top of the show, if you missed part one, If you missed part one, log on to fathermatters.org, soundcloud.com, blogtalkradio.com, blogtalk.com, or or, um, the Father Matters Facebook page. That's blogtalkradio.com. I'm sorry. I'm looking at five different things here. I'm excited for part two because we've got all the emails. We got your phone calls, but the majority of the questions that you have, Pamela is about to answer. We're going to get into uh, parenting, a lot of the parenting myths and mysteries. And again, October 19th, men out there, join us here in Phoenix at the Father Matters Mentoring Workshop. And if you have not yet partnered with Father Matters, would you please consider becoming a Father Matters partner? 
The Father Matters Show is listener-supported, and all Father Matters programs and services are free to the community because of your generous donations. For more information about donating to Father Matters, please log on to fathermatters.org and click the Donate to Father Matters icon. We need your help. We need your help. There's not a lot of support for fathers out there. There's not a lot of programs. There's not a lot of services. So for the handful of programs and services that are out there, if it's not Father Matters, please support those Father Father's programs, those men program. They just want to be better fathers, better husbands, better providers. But we've got to show these men that we got their back. And it's just not enough support for fatherhood out there. It's not. So we are about to get back into Pamela and she's covering the myths and mysteries of family law cases. She's doing part two. And again, later, I will plug her website and her phone number. Jeremy, let's get into part two, my man. A legal annulment then you're going to need to have some grounds, such as fraud um, or coercion, or somehow you were led astray into this marriage. If you want a religious annulment, that's a different animal altogether, and that would be under the rules and guidelines of your particular religion. In most circumstances, annulments in Arizona courts are not granted unless you have very strong evidence that there's been some sort of fraud or or coercion of some kind. Now we get into some parenting questions. So, we're married when the baby was born. The baby's not mine. So when we divorce, I'm off the hook. Is this true? Is it false? Okay. And how about if the baby's only a year old? Does Does it matter how old the child is? Okay, so you guys are already clued into this. Under our statutes, if you are married, when a child is born, even if it's not your child, that, that is legally your child until proven otherwise. Because we're presuming that if you're married to someone, that's the person you're having children with, but we know that's not always the case. Sometimes things happen that are outside of that box. So... If that's your situation, then you have to advise the court, this is not my natural child, and there'll be a DNA test and so on. So just keep that in mind, that if you're married and there is a child who is not your natural child, you may still be the legal parent until proven otherwise. Then we go to the other situation. We were never married, but my name's on the birth certificate, so it's all good, right? Is that true? Is that true? As long as the name's on the birth certificate? Anybody think so? Is that false? Okay, I see a couple of nods. And how about if the baby's over a year old? Does that matter? I don't think it matters. So the reality is that your name on the birth certificate is evidence of paternity, but it's not legal paternity because legal paternity comes with a decree of paternity. So again, it's a legal process where you notify the court, I'm the father, this is the mother, or I'm the mother and that's the dad, and you can then establish joint legal decision-making, parenting time, child support, and the paternity of the child. Now, sometimes paternity is by consent, so that both parents show up and say, yes, this is our baby, and here's the birth certificate, and we feel comfortable with this. And other times, uh, a parent is not convinced that that's their child, and either the mother or the father can request a DNA test. And that would be, of course, proof positive um, of the paternity of the child. So next up, 
let's talk about parenting a little bit more. I'm the best parent in the world, and I know it. So I should be the primary parent, and I should get full custody. True? Best parent in the world? Uh, False. Sometimes best parents are maybe in their own mind. And only if your child is the same sex as you. So dads get to have the the boy children and moms get to have the girl children. Is this true or false? No? Doesn't matter, right? So a lot of times we hear from a parent, I'm the better parent. I'm really good at this. Ladies, we are the guilt that, frankly. I'm a really good mom. Sometimes that's I'm the best dad at it. And while the thing may be true, reality is both parents have parenting time, unless there's some age circumstance like addiction, ultimate violence, child or something like that. Just or people, like all of us, the parents are to have parent time. So it's important, I think, for everyone to the pro- understand every child has two parents and be encouraging that parent-child relationship as much possible for the healthy development of the children. And even though you may no longer like that other parent... That was the person you chose to have a child with, whether you're a man or a woman, you made that decision. And so we want to make sure that the kids get to see both of their parents and grow up with that relationship. So next up, child support, very sensitive topic. So I took a lower paying job so I wouldn't have to pay support. That's a good strategy, right? No, (laughs) that's not a good strategy. So a lot of times people have that idea, like, well... I just won't get a job, and then I won't have to pay support, and it'll all be okay, and I'll maybe go take some money under the table somewhere doing something. It's a bad idea, and it really doesn't work. So our courts have, they're already hip to this trick. So they figured out, hey, guys, women, whoever you are that's trying to uh, avoid this support obligation, go ahead and quit your job. Have at it. We're not going to force you to work. But we're going to look at those tax returns, and we're going to impute that income to you. So what that means is, even if you're not earning that 40000 that you were last year, or 140 or whatever it was, even if you're not earning that, we're going to pretend that you are earning it, and that's what your support obligation will be based on. So quitting a job in order to avoid paying support, whether it's child support or spousal support, is not a great strategy because you might not be able to get the job back, and now you're also being um, imputed that income. So it can make life a little bit more difficult than it needs to be. So spousal support is our next topic. And here's a common thing. My spouse never worked, but I shouldn't have to pay spousal support because she can get a job if she wants to. She puts out some effort, right? No. (laughs) So, yes, oftentimes we're looking at, and it's 98%, I would think, uh, women receiving spousal support paid by men. And very often we have traditional arrangements where mom stayed home with the kids and dad went to work. And now that there's a dissolution, dad's like, whoa, she can work. She's like a genius and she could do anything and make a lot of money, way more than me. And mom might say, uh, yeah, I haven't worked in 12 years. I'm not even really sure how to use a smartphone. So (laughs) we have, we have a little bit of a gap there in expectations. And so one of the things that you want to talk about 
when you're having a conversation around spousal support is what is the realistic expectation of income for the spouse who would be receiving support? And by realistic, I mean what can they actually earn? Not what we want them to earn in the future, but what can they earn today and what is that going to look like for them? So I'll give you an example. I have a client who has a severely disabled son and this child is never going to be self-sufficient and when he was born, his disabilities were very apparent to everyone, and mom came home. She stopped working. That was 16 years ago. The parties are now divorcing, and dad says, you don't need support. You have two master's degrees, and she does. She has, she's very bright. She has two master's degrees. She also has a child who's medically fragile and severely handicapped and has an IQ of 43. So mom stayed home for these last 16 years. Dad says, well, you can go to work now. Just go ahead and go to work and and get somebody to care for the child. So we did a little research, figured out that mom's skills are obviously really outdated, and her capacity for earning right now is about $14 or $15 an hour. And respite care, skilled nursing respite care for a medically handicapped child is between $15 and $25 an hour. So yes, mom can earn that money. And every hour that she works, she'll be in the hole another $10 or so. So you have to look at the practical aspects of a person's income as well as what their earning capacity might be. And in this case, mom's earning capacity is actually negative by the time a respite worker is paid. So she will be getting some spousal support in order to make up the difference um, because she can't go out and earn a living. So keep those things in mind. And, and spousal support is a two-part inquiry. So part one is do you qualify? And that's based on the longevity of marriage, what resources are available, what's been the prior income, and so on. If the person is entitled to an award of spousal support, then we go to step two and we ask how much and for how long. And that's a much more detailed inquiry. So we have to look at reasonable needs and so on. But there's no formula. Child support, we can plug in some numbers and we'll give you a figure just like that. With spousal support, there's no such thing. And so we're really trying to convince, one side is trying to convince the other, we really need this support. And the other side's trying to say, hey, you really don't need this support. And so very often spousal support issues are the type that will go to trial because there's no bright line rule. There's no hard and fast guideline to say, if you earn X, you're going to pay Y. So it's a difficult topic. And sometimes people get really emotional about it because they feel insecure on Very often it's the women, and they'll feel insecure because they won't have uh, a guaranteed income. They don't have a job, and and so looking at their financial future is scary. And then for the the man paying the support, it can feel scary too. Like, how how am I going to do this? How am I going to make ends meet um, when now we're in two households and we have one pie to split, and the pie is not big enough for both households? So it can be a a very um, emotional and very upsetting issue to talk about, and yet it's one of those necessary things so that children don't end up living in poverty. And that's the the real bottom line, is that if uh, a woman is not receiving enough support to keep her head above water, then we have an an, an issue of child poverty. And I think everybody agrees that we don't want our kids living below the poverty line, if at all possible. 
So what happens if you don't pay that support? So if I don't pay my child support on time, I can go to jail. Is that true? I see some nods. Yes, that is true. It's way down the line of remedies, but it is one of the remedies. And I think you're going to hear a lot about uh, child support and uh, the accountability courts from some of our other speakers. So I'm not going to go into any further detail on that, but just understand that failure to pay child support is a pretty serious thing because in our statute, we say it is a primary financial obligation. That means before you make that car payment or before you make that credit card payment, you need to be paying your child support. So up next, if I move to another state, I don't have to follow the orders entered by our Arizona judges. Is that true? Is that false? False? Okay. What about if it's outside the Ninth Circuit? So we, we are in the Ninth Circuit here in Arizona. If you move outside the Ninth Circuit, it still doesn't matter. You're right. In a, we have what's called full faith and credit. So an order entered in Arizona is binding in Alaska, Alabama, Arkansas, and all the other letters of the alphabet. So if you have a child support order or a spousal support order, um, that needs to be uh, abided by no matter where you live, even if you move out of state. And there's a little thing called the long arm of the law. And if you, let's say, move to Illinois and you no longer pay your child support, the people in Illinois are going to cooperate with the people in Arizona to collect that child support. So it's important to keep on top of it and not just think that you can avoid the consequences by moving somewhere else. Okay, so now we're going to talk about how to choose an attorney. And please forgive me, um, I don't know if any of you have been to the uh, Monroe Sonoran Lights exhibit at the Desert Botanical Gardens. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. And if you have seasonal allergies like I do, I highly recommend you take a Benadryl before you go because everything in the, in the garden is in bloom. So I, I'm a, my voice is a little scratchy. So let's talk about how you choose an attorney. This is a really difficult topic sometimes because people... Um, feel like, well, I want to go to the attorney that my friend had or uh, my mom had or my sister or whomever. So the first thing to ask yourself, though, is do you need an attorney? Do you actually need an attorney? And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes you may just need a little guidance. And if you do need an attorney, then who do you choose? So I would say that most people spend more time planning a vacation than they do selecting their attorney, and that's a mistake. Um, and yet, at the same time, we often don't know who to, where do you go? How do you pick someone? How do you find that right attorney for you? And so the way that I like to look at it is um, to decide what you want. So if you would go to our next slide on how to choose an attorney. So rule number one, decide what type of services you want and research that. So if you want uh, someone who specializes in um, thoracic surgery, you would not go to an orthopedic surgeon, right? And you wouldn't want a cardiologist working on your knees, and you wouldn't want the, 
the orthopedic surgeon working on your heart. You need to find that niche, that specialty that's going to address what your need is. So sometimes your need is you need someone to help you advocate in mediation. Sometimes your need is I just want somebody to review my documents and make sure I didn't make a total mess of this. Sometimes you need someone to negotiate on your behalf. Sometimes you need someone to just give you some advice and you can go away and think about it and come up with a solution on your own. So first figure out what do you need. When you figured out what you need, then find the attorneys that provide those services. So, for example, if you call my office and you say, I have a trial in May and it's a full-day trial and we're, we're going to talk about everything from splitting up the 401k all the way down the line, and by the way, we've been fighting for a year. Then probably what we're going to say is we've got a whole bank of people we'd love to refer you to because that's not where my focus is. If you call my office and say, we'd like to schedule a mediation, perfect. So knowing what attorney is addressing what issue is really important. And sometimes you may not get the answer that you think you're going to get. So I think being educated about the services that you need and sticking to your guns is a really important factor. So for example, if you go to attorney X and you tell attorney X, I just want to settle this, I just want to mediate it, or you know, maybe we can just all get together and negotiate a settlement, that's what I want to do. And attorney X says, well, I think... If we go to trial, you can do a lot better than you might do at mediation, and I can get you some additional benefits, and maybe you won't have to pay as much, or maybe you'll get paid more, and I can do that for you. But your whole reason for being there is to talk about mediation. Don't back down. Don't, don't fall under the spell, and you can express that interest and say, I really want to settle this. I really don't want to fight about this. And if the attorney is pushing you to go a different direction than what you feel in your gut is the right way to go, then maybe that's not a good fit for you. So I encourage people to get more than one opinion. Go to more than one attorney and interview them and see who's going to fit with your philosophy and what you want to do. Now, if you hear from two or three attorneys that, hey, you've got to go to trial on this, then you're getting a consensus and you probably do need to go to trial. But if you're getting different opinions from different attorneys, I would say go with your gut because you're, this is your life and you're in charge. And finally, um, well, number three is interview the prospective attorney, as I just talked about. Rule number four, you're going to work with the attorney to determine your budget, in, hopefully in advance. So I know a lot of times we don't know. And someone may say to me, hey, you know, I, I've, I've got this issue and we're going to modify child support and how much is that going to cost? And my answer is, unfortunately, I have no idea because it really depends on the other person, right? So if that other person comes to the table and we can figure out child support and we're done, then that's going to be a very inexpensive process. If the other person fights you tooth and nail, refuses to provide disclosures, won't show up for meetings, won't respond to settlement offers, then your costs are going to go up exponentially. So understand that one person can drive the process right over the cliff. And before you know it, you're spending more on attorney's fees than what, you, what the outcome is going to be. So we want to avoid that at, if we can. Uh, number five, be proactive to minimize your fees. This is a thing that I see all the time that 
you become overwhelmed. The client is, is upset and, you know, it's very stressful and it's emotional and it's all those things. And they end up defaulting or um, delegating everything to the attorney. Well, we're expensive and it's an expensive exercise for you to not, for example, um, scan your own documents and get them to our office. Because if we have to sit and scan a big stack of documents, it takes time and we're going to bill you for that. So understanding what you can do on your own versus what the attorney needs to do is an important distinction to make. And so if you're hiring an attorney, I encourage you to ask what can I do to reduce my fees? What are the things, the steps that I can take, the work that I can do on my own, my own homework, in order to cut those fees down? And there's often lots of things that the client can do to reduce their fees. Some things I'm just going to have to do. But other things, like gathering documents, that sort of thing, absolutely you should be doing that to save yourself money. And then finally, be a smart consumer. So an example, um, we have a client who's really a darling person and loves to talk. <laughs> and, and so she'll call our office, and she might have one question. But she'll talk and talk and talk, and then later she'll call back and say, oh, yeah, I forgot that other question, and then she'll talk and talk and talk. That and was two weeks of Pamela Donison of Donison Law Firm. Reach out to Pamela at DonisonLaw.com. Her phone number is 480-951-6599. I hope you got a lot of information out of both week's shows. Um, Please, again, continue to, if you can, donate to Father Matters. We need your help. Thank you for tuning in to the Father Matters show. Send us your questions or comments to info at fathermatters.org. Thank you to my engineer, Jeremy Siegel. Don't forget the October 19th Father's Mentoring Father's Workshop, okay? See you next week at the same time, same place. Have a safe week. Thank you, and God bless.